If you're new with us, you know uh, we're in the midst of a series, or you don't know, we're in the midst of a series titled Get What You Desire. Uh, And we've been talking about the last uh, week or so, and this week, uh, the difference between wants and desires and how wants, as we're calling them, are a broken, uh, fallen expression of what we desire, but it'll never satisfy us when we get it because the wants are broken. And what we need to learn is how do we get what we truly desire? Uh, What is it inside us that's seeking for something that will truly satisfy us? And so this has been a journey to do just that. And last week, I want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, or you missed it, or you're new with us, and today's your first Sunday, you really kind of need to put these two Sundays together. Last Sunday was kind of the, the crux of laying the foundation for what we're talking about today. And as Eddie mentioned, that's free. You can download the app and you can watch last week's message if you just go in there to sermons and find the Get What You Desire series. And that message will be there. I'd encourage you to listen to it or, or watch it. It'll really uh, help you understand. Ultimately, the point of that message was if you get what you want, you will never get what you desire. And, and the more you get what you want, and if you always get what you want, it'll prevent you from getting what you truly desire. And we just talk through what that looks like and how really in your life, every single regret that you have started with a want that you had. And so that's what we've been talking about. So what I want to do today is I want to review a little bit because uh, it's important as we do there. You have some notes today on your worship guide on the very back. Uh, you can jot these down if you want these definitions, but the points there will fill in as we go. This is kind of a, a, a tiny review from yesterday, or from last Sunday, excuse me. A want is a shallow expression of what I truly desire. Or I would even add there a shallow, broken expression of what I truly desire. As fallen sinners since Adam, we're, we're broken. That's what the Bible calls sin. And what happens is we start wanting things that aren't truly going to satisfy us. So that's one of the greatest expressions of our brokenness is that. And we can keep going after it and realize it never seems to satisfy us because we're going after the wrong thing. So that's what a want is. That's how I'm using it through this series. A need is the most basic and minimal supply is what is necessary. So obviously we have basic needs that are, are, are need to be supplied. But honestly, if all we did was live on our basic needs... There'd be a lot of things in our lives that would just be kind of humdrum and boring. That sounds boring to just get what you need. And God's uh, waiting to give us what we truly desire, uh, and that's the last one in a proper way. Desire is a deep affection that seeks what is truly valuable. Now notice the difference. A want is a shallow expression of what I truly desire or, or what I truly value. A desire is, goes after what's truly valuable. Sometimes we want things that really aren't that valuable. Remember when your kids were little and they always wanted those like McDonaldland toys? Can we get another one? Yeah. And they thought it was like Christmas. They opened it up and in three days it was broken in pieces and gone and they didn't care about it. Because we want things that don't have any real value in them. Okay, let me give you a statement that kind of helps you compare the two or those three. Wants reveal what I value. So whatever you want in life is often what you value. And that could be different for every person, but it's personal uh, and it's not necessarily what's valuable. Sometimes we want things that aren't really valuable. Needs reveal what is necessary, but my desires seek what is truly valuable. Notice the difference between what I value 
that's subjective, and what is truly valuable, that's objective, meaning it's, it's valuable whether I seek it or not, okay? Now let me uh, just give credit where credit is due. I mentioned this last week, and if you're a reader, I wanna encourage you to grab these books. There's two books that have highly influenced me for this whole series, and a lot of my concepts have come from them. One of them is a book called Religious Affections. It's an old book written by uh, a pastor and theologian in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most significant uh, American theologians in the history of our country, was part and responsible in a lot of ways for the first great revival, and a lot of other things in our nation, but he wrote a book called Religious Affections, and you can buy it now uh, in updated language so you can actually understand it, and he talks about a lot of these concepts of, of affections, what he calls, as opposed to feelings that are kind of the surface things. The affections are those deeper things, and how do you discern what are good feelings or good affections and bad affections? So I'm using a lot of those concepts that are original with him. The other book that was highly influential to me is a book called The Great Divorce, yeah, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Again, written a while ago, the title is not, it's like, really? Is there such thing as a great divorce? I, I didn't think there was, but, but it's not about marriage, okay? That's not the point of it. It's about heaven and hell, and it's C.S. Lewis, who is an atheist that became a believer, as many of you know, and wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other uh, allegorical-type stories, and he wrote a lot on Christian Christianity as well in similar ways, using allegories and parable to describe concepts that he learned in scripture in very poignant ways. And this one is a, is a story about hell, what hell might be like. And he portrays hell as a place uh, more philosophically than, than physically, is a place where you get everything that you want. And he says that's what hell is. And, and he plays it out in the story and it's fascinating what happens is that when you get in, in this place that this guy goes to visit, everything that you imagine, whatever you want, becomes your reality. And you see in the story what that leads to, to the point of isolation and, and people are so far separated because they want a different house. That means they're moving to a new neighborhood. Then they don't like their neighbor. They want a different neighbor, so they move further out. And pretty soon people have moved so far spread out that they are isolated from every other human contact. And they're getting everything they want, but they aren't getting any satisfaction. So fascinating books that have influenced a good majority of what I'm teaching you today in terms of stories and just thoughts. So today we're going to jump in. Here's what we want to look at today uh, with wants and needs. I want to illustrate these. I did this last week for you, but just for those who are new or a little bit of a review, this could be an example. We want... Uh, an iPhone 8, that's the iPhone 8 right there, at least a prototype, right? And everyone's going, yeah, some of you are already going, oh, I gotta have that. <laughs> right, you're busted already and we're not even starting the message yet. That's what you want, that's what you really need, right? All you really need is just the, you know, the ability to make some connections. But what you desire is just to be connected with other people. You wanna feel like you belong somewhere and, and we look for it in a lot of different ways, okay? If that didn't make sense, let me give you another one that might help. You want... That's what you want, but what you need is taco palenque. But what you truly desire is taco palenque. So the only area in our lives that has not been touched by sin is the, our desire for taco palenque. It's the one righteous aspect of who we are, right? Good, all right. That's why, like I always say, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. I came to the Holy Land because the temple of taco palenque 
all started right here. So let me go through. Here's, here's what we want to get. You'll never get what you truly desire until you understand what is truly valuable. That's the path we want to go on today. You'll never get what you truly desire until you understand what is truly valuable. So I want to show you five things real quick today. Five things, uh, all of them have an R kind of connection. The first three are what we're responsible for. What we are responsible for in order to pursue and find out what we really desire. And then the last two are what will result from us getting what we desire. So the first three are responsibilities we need to take on our part to go after what is truly desirable. And the last two are the results. When you get what is truly desirable, when you find what is truly satisfying, these are the two results that will mark your life that will help you know, hey, that really was one of those things that's desirable and satisfying, okay? So if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with us. We're gonna be jumping around a little bit today because of the topical nature of it, but the passages will also be coming up up on the screen, and you can follow along and just jot down the reference for your own personal uh, knowledge later on if you wanna go back to these passages. So the first one is our first responsibility, and that's this. To get what I desire, I must first understand what is most valuable. To get what I desire, I must first understand what is most valuable. One of my favorite parables, one of the shortest parables in the Bible comes uh, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 13. And a neat thing about Matthew chapter 13 is Jesus teaches his disciples a whole bunch of parables that teach different aspects about the coming kingdom of heaven of what eternity is going to be like. And in the midst of those parables that he's describing it, he gives this one here that's kind of a big picture of the coming kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Man, this, this parable captures this truth about eternity, about God, and about the place he's creating. And it does so with some very key things. One of the main points I want to make, because this is a whole message in itself, or multiple messages, but the main goal I want to talk about here is this concept of, what, one, knowing what's valuable, but doing so by keeping the end in sight, of meaning beginning with the end in sight before you go on your journey. One of our problems is, is wants often seek immediacy. I want this now, I want this, I want this, I want this, and we're driven by this. Man, this is the best deal, it's never gonna come by again, or I'm never gonna have this opportunity again. You'd be amazed at how many wants are couched in that kind of language. In fact, all of commercials and, and advertising captures that idea. If you don't get this deal now, it is never gonna come back again. It's driven at our sinful brokenness. But this man here kept the end in sight, and that's the only way you'll ever see what's truly valuable. Look at what happens in this parable. Just walk it through. He says he finds a field, he goes to a field, and he's walking through a field, and, and he finds this treasure hidden in it. He covers it up, and then he, he goes and he spends the rest of his life that he, in that next period, it must have been a pretty significant period, selling everything that he has because he wants to buy that field. Now, why would he do that? What do you think was true of that treasure? It had a great value, didn't it? 
So much so that he said, I'm, I gotta have this field. So he kept the end goal in sight and that influenced everything he had. He said, that treasure is so valuable that if I can get that field, that treasure comes with it, it's worth it. So look at what he does. It, he, it, says, it says this, he went home and he went, oh man, I mean, I gotta sell my car. I love this car. I've had this car since I was in high school. I fixed it up and in my home, I mean, I love my home. Oh, do I really have to give that up? Man, I like this stuff that I have. Is that what the parable says? No. See, the reason he didn't have a problem letting go of what was there before him is because he had the end in sight, didn't he? He knew that this car, this home, this job, or, or all this stuff that I have is worth nothing compared to what I'm gonna have when I get that field. And the end drove him to see what was truly valuable. And so it says with joy. With joy he got rid of it because he knew what he was going to get was infinitely more valuable than anything he was giving up. We need to do that in our own lives. We need to keep the end in focus to keep us from getting distracted by these easy little paths that we think will satisfy our wants but never do. I want to read to you an illustration from a book. If you've never read this book by Stephen Covey, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it's a, an old classic uh, and some interesting stuff in here. I read it years ago, but an in illustration from it came to mind as I was planning this. I just want to read it to you, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, and he's going to take you on a journey in this illustration in the book. So just just follow along with what he says in here as you close your eyes, okay? It says, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor or the chapel, uh, parking the car, and getting out. And as you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers, the soft organ music. You see the faces of friends and family, you pass along the way, you feel the shared sorrow of losing, the joy of having known that radiates from the hearts of the people there. And as you walk down to the front of the room and look inside the casket, you suddenly come to face to face with yourself. This is your funeral, three years from today. All these people here have come to honor you to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. As you take a seat and wait for the services to begin, you look at the program in your hand and there are to be four speakers. The first is from your family, maybe a child or a brother, a sister, a nephew, a niece, an aunt, an uncle, cousins, grandparents, who've come from all over the country to attend. The second speaker is one of your friends someone who can give a sense of what you were as a person. The third speaker is from your work or profession. And the fourth is from your church or some community organization where you've been involved in service. Now think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you in your life? What kind of husband, wife, father, mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of brother or sister or friend or working associate would you like them to speak about? 
What character would you like them to have seen in you? What contributions, what achievements would you want them to remember? Look carefully at the people around you. What difference would you like to have made in their lives? Now open your eyes. Now my guess is that the kinds of things you thought about in that moment are probably as close to what is truly valuable in life than the majority of what we often chase after with our wants. That's what I like about this parable and this principle is that the only way we'll ever get what we truly desire is when we come to understand what's truly valuable. And the only way we'll ever trace what's truly valuable is to keep the end in sight with every present decision that we make. Second responsibility we have. Second responsibility we have to do this is to get what I desire requires me to delight in what is right. To get what I desire requires me to delight in what is right. One of the most famous verses in the Bible and often misused verses comes uh, from this concept or leads to this concept. Psalm uh, 37.4 says this. says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And us Christians being as you know, godly and scriptural as we are, we go right to the last half of that verse. Oh yeah, God's gonna give me the desires of my heart. God, give me that faster car. God, give me that you know, bigger body. Let me be that athlete, God. Give me, that, give me the quarterback position. Give me that position, man. God, that's my desire. We run right to that because we want what we want. But we miss the whole point of this passage. You see, there's only one command in the passage in the original language. The command is the very first word in this verse, delight. You are commanded to delight yourself in the Lord, meaning learn to find your delight in the Lord. And then the result is that act part. Once you do this, once you follow the first part of delighting yourself in the Lord, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Because what happens when you delight yourself in the Lord is you find him to be the most valuable thing you could ever delight yourself in. And your delights become his delights. And when your delights are his delights, then you're gonna get everything that you desire because God always gets what he wants because he's the only person whose desires and wants are perfectly consistent. Let me explain this a little bit because it's so important. This results in, in how we relate to God. I must have the courage in this idea to reject what is clearly called wrong according to scripture regardless of how strongly I want it. That's part of what this is. Delighting yourself in the Lord is having the courage to strongly reject and resist everything that the scriptures calls wrong in order to pursue what is truly valuable. You see, our real problem, and this is where we struggle as humans, our real problem isn't that we don't get what we want. Our real problem is that we don't desire what is truly valuable. 
And this is where we make our greatest mistake. We think our problem is, I didn't get what I want. And so here's what we do. We spend our whole lives trying to fix and manipulate our circumstances so that we can get what we want. And never once do we stop to say, maybe the problem isn't our circumstances. Maybe it's our wants. We don't ever stop to do that. And what this passage is saying is the problem is not what's been provided. The problem is that we want the wrong things. You see, heaven is not just fixing our circumstances so that we get everything we want. The heart of heaven is your desires to be so fully transformed that what God provides is the most satisfying thing you could ever imagine. We're the problem, not our circumstances. Let let me illustrate this in kind of a fun way, but a a, a kind of mind-blowing way, okay? Husbands, listen up real quick. Okay, we're gonna start with you real quick on this one. So let's just, let's just picture husbands. Are you with me, husbands? Let me see some eyes up here, all right? Because this is gonna change your life, just this concept. Let's just picture husbands that, that God could change your desires, okay? And he can, but let's say he changed your desire in such a way that it was never a problem for you in the middle of the big game and your wife comes walking into the room and she sits down and she says, honey, I just really need to share every single detail of my day with you right now. And your desire was such that you just, I mean, not even thinking about it, you didn't have to look, you just went over, boop, hit the mute button and say, honey, I'm all yours. I've waited for this moment <laughs> to hear you share every detail. This fills me. This, you complete me. <laughs> and she sits down and she shares every single detail. And what's awesome is, because she gets the end of the details and you're going, I, I just want more. And, and she's going to give you more. So not only does she give you the details, she tells you how she felt about every one of those details. Twice. And not once did your thumb twitch over here. Not once did you glance over to see that Super Bowl catch that won it. Just think about that. Think about if your desire was such that that was so satisfying to you as it is to her, what that would do to your marriage. See, we don't ever think about that. We think, oh, my wife's the problem. This is a great game, and this game is going to change my eternity. (laughs) We don't stop to think maybe the problem is within us, right? Just imagine if you wanted what was truly going to be best for your relationship. Now, ladies, (laughs) you didn't think you were going to get off that easy, did you? Imagine this, ladies, okay? Imagine that your desires for your husband was so great that you could not wait every single day for him to get home from work so that you could have just passionate sex with him the moment he walked in the door. I mean, just picture this. You're texting him all during the day going, oh, you don't have any idea what's in store for you when you get home, honey. Hashtag marriage sexting. Right? You're throwing that in there, you're inviting him, and you're just so excited for him to get home. I mean, not only would that be awesome that you would want that and you'd find great satisfaction, your husband would probably be home right after lunch every day from work. In fact, he would probably just take the whole day off just to sit and listen with, to you all day. 
Think of how different that would be in your relationship. Think of some of you students that are out there. Just imagine if God changed your desires such that, that homework was like the best thing ever in your life. I mean, apart from taking out the garbage and mowing the lawn that you find the deepest satisfaction in, you can't wait to finish those tasks because planning your homework, I love doing homework, just fills my soul. Imagine how different your life would be if your desires were such that you love doing those things. It's kind of fascinating to think about, isn't it? You see, our problem is not our circumstances. And heaven is not gonna be all about changing our circumstances. Heaven is gonna be primarily about changing us. And that's what this passage talks about. Third responsibility we have. To get what I desire results from a spiritually transformed mind. Results from a spiritually transformed mind. We spent three semesters, three series in our Be Transformed series talking about this concept. And I'll use our theme verse to kind of sum it up again. Paul says this in Romans 12, uh, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. There we go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. And then he describes what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we go to God to get him to do our will, and it never leads to satisfaction. What God tells us and what the Bible tells us is we need to go to him to change our minds so that we will come to realize that it's his will that's good, that's acceptable, and perfect. See, I will not get what I desire being ignorant of what God says. Let me say that again. You will not get what you desire being ignorant of what God says. If this book lays closed in your home on a regular basis, just plan on living a life that will never truly satisfy you because you can't delight in his word. You can't know what is right. You can't have a transformed mind unless you know what it needs to be transformed into. I'm not saying you need to become a biblical scholar. I'm just saying that this is a relationship. You need to get to know God to know what he wants for you and what he desires for you. You will not get what you desire without taking God at his word. That's the second thing. So you need to be in his word, but then you need to take God at his word. You can't come to this and say, okay, I'm gonna do this, because again, oftentimes we come and you say, if I do a little bit of rival reading, man, God's gotta give me what I want then. That's what we start doing. We read it, ah, oh, don't like that thing there. Hmm, hmm, no, and I'm not gonna do that, but, but there's gotta be something else in here that's good for me. Oh yeah, the desires of my heart, I like that part. God, give me the desires of my heart, right? You can't just take and pick what you want. You gotta take God at his word. And when you begin to do that, your mind will begin to be transformed. So those are the three responsibilities we have, three steps we take. The last two I wanna show you here are our results. These are the results of getting what you desire. And it's very important you see these because when you get what you want, there'll be different results. But when you get what you desire, these are the things that uh, come about in our life. The first one is this. When I get what I desire, it is accompanied by spirit-filled humility. When I get what I desire, 
It is accompanied by spirit-filled humility. In fact, the very process of being satisfied in a godly way develops humility. So let's watch what Paul says in Philippians 3 about himself, the Apostle Paul. He says this, for we are the circumcision, he's using a metaphor for us Christians who are part of the family of God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's using that term flesh, meaning uh, in our abilities. Okay, we don't put any confidence in our own abilities. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in my own abilities also, as I'm putting it. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes on to list his resume, Paul's spiritual resume. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what was commanded of an Israelite, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So Paul goes on to list what to a Jewish person was the pinnacle of accomplishments. And Paul's telling them, I have this resume and I've come to realize I can't put any confidence in myself. He had developed a humility that recognized there's nothing I bring to the table by myself in this world. But, we see, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Remember the treasure in the field? He was willing to consider everything loss because of something that was of so much greater worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible, rubbish. We don't even say that anymore. But you know the word behind it is only used one time in the whole scriptures? It's the Greek word skubala. And the reason it's only used once, and, and most translators don't translate it properly, I've never seen one English version properly translate that word because most people won't allow you to put a cuss word in the Bible. That's what that word is. Uh, let me give you a picture of what that word means. It means what comes out of the south end of a north-facing cow, if you know what I'm talking about. And it was a, a crude term for crap, for S-H-I-T. It was, that's how that word would have been used in Greek. And Paul wanted something that was so, you're not going to forget that now, are you? Because that's what, that's what Paul's trying to tell us. He's saying, compared to what I gain in Christ, anything I had in this world is like a big, warm, ooey, gooey, smelly pile of dung. You're not ever going to forget it. You may not remember anything else in the message. You're going to remember that. He says, in order that I may gain Christ. And he goes on to say this, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love that passage about Paul and his humility. Because that always accompanies true satisfaction. That's why when we demand to get what we want, when we want it, it never fully satisfies us. When we go after and, and demand and grab at what we want, when we get it, you're never really satisfied. And, and you're certainly not humble at that moment. I mean, just picture this. We see this all around our world. Think about, like, eating. 
Okay, when you're super hungry and you eat so fast, you just come into the house and you're like, oh, I want this right now, and you grab whatever's in the cupboard or whatever you get, you start shoving it down. One, you feel really bad afterwards, don't you? It's like, oh, my goodness, I ate too fast. And then the other thing that happens is you eat that junk that's in the cupboard, and then you lose your appetite for the good meal that's been prepared and will be ready in about 30 minutes. And you see that great meal there, and you're going, oh, man, I don't, I'm not even hungry anymore, and I feel terrible. I can't even eat what would truly satisfy us. That's what Paul's talking about. That's not a humility that waits. It's demanding to get what we want right now. Think of a spoiled child. What's a spoiled child? A spoiled child is one that gets everything that he or she wants, that their parents give them everything they want. Are they pleasant to be around? No. They're some of the most miserable kids to be around, and yet they're getting everything they want. Some of us are spoiled children in certain areas of our lives. And we think that getting what we want is going to really satisfy us. But the Bible tells us otherwise. When you are truly getting what you desire, it produces a deep humility in you. When you think you deserve what you got, it won't satisfy you. When you become proud from what you receive, you'll not be satisfied. It's just how the world works. We see it all around us, but when humility is produced in you, making you grateful and submissive to God, you will find a deep satisfaction in your life that no circumstance can touch. It's just the reality of it. That's the first sign that it's something that's satisfied and not something that you just want. The last one is this. When I get what I desire, it results in a more Christ-like character. When I get what I desire, it results in a more Christ-like character. Paul finishes this passage we just looked at about humility in verses 10 and 11, and he just carries it on, and he gives us the result right here. He says, that I may know him, meaning Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's Paul's purpose. And when we get what we desire, it produces an overwhelming humility in us that leads to gratitude. And when we get what we desire properly, not what we want, but what we desire, it results in us becoming more like Jesus. That last phrase, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, is a horrible translation, unfortunately. And almost every English translator does it that way. A few don't, but the, the Greek actually means if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's stating a hypothetical statement. He's not saying that by any means possible I may attain it because that would mean I have to work for that. What he's saying is that, hey, I want to live in such a way that I'm so connected with Christ that if there is some possible way I could attain the resurrection from the dead, I want my life to be going in that direction. It's a hypothetical statement in the original language. It's a poor translation that happens oftentimes with English translators that we keep following the same English translators and they get passed down, but that's ultimately what that means. You see, your delight is directly tied to God's glory. When you delight in what brings God the most glory, you will find yourself becoming deeply satisfied. But when your delights require disobedience to God, 
plan on living a life that will be full of unsatisfied desires. You know, when Jesus lived here on earth, he had two deep desires that we see in so many ways throughout his life. One of them was to be with his father again in intimate fellowship. When he came down and took on human flesh, he experienced a separation from his father like none he'd ever experienced before for all of eternity. So one of his desires was to go back to that deeply satisfying relationship. The second was uh, to bring some of us with us. He wanted you and I to experience the deepness and richness of that relationship with his father. Those were two of his deepest desires. And here's what's so amazing about that. Once he put on human flesh, the moment he became a baby, there was only one way he could possibly get back to heaven with his father. To live an absolutely sinless life. In his 33 years, if he were to have sinned one time, he would have never been with his father again. His father was perfect. He needed to be perfect. So Jesus went his whole life, 33 years, knowing that one mistake and we're separated forever. But here's what's interesting is Jesus went through life and he was tempted, the Bible says, in every way like we are, but it, it, Jesus didn't even break a sweat resisting the temptations in this earth for 33 years. Not even a sweat. Why? Because he had tasted the joys of heaven for all eternity past and there was nothing in this world that could even compare to what he knew awaited him in heaven. Let me just give you a, a poor picture but maybe a vivid one at, at best. Let's, let's say you're hungry right now, okay? A lot of you are because you get hungry around this time and your stomach's starting to growl and you're going, how much longer is this message, Pastor Chad? Because I got some lunch going. Well, I'm gonna make a deal with you today. I'm going to get a nice, warm, homoid tortilla. I got some right back here. I'm warming up, okay? And I'm going to scoop up a nice, big, warm, juicy, runny scoop of cow dung and slop that baby right inside there, roll it up, and it's all yours right now. Dive in. I mean, just eat it. It's all over your face and your hands. It's going to smell great. The guy sitting next to you is going to go, man, I just want a bite of that so bad. You can, ha you can have that right now. Or if you can wait 30 minutes, I got a big, fat, soft, juicy pirata. <laughs> and it's all yours, baby. But you gotta wait 30 minutes. How many of you are tempted by that first offer? Come on, I know some of you are out there. Not, not one of you, right? Because you know what's waiting. You see, temptation loses its lure when you know resisting it will lead to something so much better. That was Jesus. When he came and lived here, he knew psh, anything that we could offer him and tempt him with in this world was like cow dung in a tortilla compared to what awaited him in heaven. I mean, you wouldn't go to any of your buddies and go, man, you are amazing. I mean, you resisted that cow dung tortilla. You are the holiest guy. You're one of the most righteous guys I've ever met. How, how did you, did share, share with me how you do that. I mean, I was, I was so close to walking that aisle and grabbing that tortilla from him. You wouldn't do that, would you? Because you're going, you'd be a lunatic to go for that when this is waiting for you. That was Jesus. Never broke a sweat resisting the temptations of this world, cow dung to him.
But that wasn't all he had to do. He did that for 33 years. That was like the warm-up. That was him stretching a little bit of this, a little bit of this. But then what happened is the second thing came in. Now a cosmic, universal temptation like no other would be thrust before him. Now, when he came toward that cross, he knew something was going to happen that had never, ever happened in his life. And his father told him, you go down and you resist every temptation. I know it's not a big deal for you, but you need to do that because you're standing in other people's place. But then after you live a perfect life, son, I'm going to have to do something to you that you've never experienced before. It's going to be temporal, but it's going to be real. And for several hours, even a few days, you will miss out. You will be broken from a fellowship that you and I have enjoyed forever, a fellowship that satisfied Jesus at such a deep level that nothing in this world could compare. And, and it's not just that broken fellowship that he was going to experience. It was, it was the thought of his father, whom all he had ever experienced was love and gratitude and pleasure for his son. At that moment, he would be angry at his son. He would be displeased at his son. He would pour out his wrath on his son. Because at that moment, your sin and my sin would be heaped on him. And he would treat that son the way you and I should be treated. When Jesus came to that point in his life, it was an epic battle, like nothing this world has ever known. In fact, the Bible says God himself, Jesus, went into a garden, got on his knees and prayed three different times in such anguish that sweat like drops of blood were pouring off of his forehead. And he said three times, God, if there is any other way, Father, please, please tempt me. Give me more temptations. That's not a problem. But break fellowship with me. Be displeased with me. Pour out your wrath and anger on me for sins that I didn't commit. Is there any other way? Three times. On the cross, he would shout out publicly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on that cross, an epic battle came about. Something that all of eternity will never experience again. The Trinity, in some ways, was ripped apart. And Jesus experienced a depth of pain and, and suffering and hurt and rejection and sorrow that he had never known before. And that, my friends, drove him to his knees. The temptations of this world, child's play. But you take me away from my father and you rip my heart out. Why would he do that? So that people like you and me who have such a broken taste for the childish things of this world would at least see one person who knew how good eternity was going to be. One person who would so powerfully resist anything this world could throw at him 
would so deeply agonize over the thought of just being separated from his father for a couple days could look like. You see, if we're ever going to get what we desire, we need to realize that in faith, we need to begin tasting the things of eternity, the things to come, so that we lose our taste for all these things in this world that will never truly satisfy us. So let me ask you this question in closing. What trash in your life are you so strongly clinging to, thinking it's going to satisfy your desires? What is it? Only you can answer that. Only God can reveal that to you. What is it? Because as long as you cling to it, you set your destiny of dissatisfaction. Instead, take your eyes off the trash and set them on the treasure because you are missing infinite treasures when you insist on clinging to trash. And, and when it gets tough, just gaze. Gaze to our Savior. Gaze to his life and see how easily he resisted temptation because he knew what awaited him. It wasn't even a temptation. It was cow dung and it was a pirata. And by faith, follow his path. When you are, are not concerned about fellowship and the pleasure of the Father and you want the pleasure and fellowship of all the people of this world, look to the cross and see how much he agonized over just a few days outside the presence of his Father. And by faith, pursue the only relationship that will truly satisfy you. That's what this series is all about. Aligning our desires with what pleases our Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you.